Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast that celebrates today's historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of nine, soon to be ten, historical novels for adults and teens. Join me and my guest for the next half hour while we talk historical fiction. Writing it, reading it, publishing it, and more with tips about process, pet peeves, and preferences. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with a wonderful author, Donna Russo-Morin, who is an Amazon international bestseller. And her most recent book, Gilded Dreams, is about the women's suffrage movement. Today is the anniversary of the signing of the amendment that gave women the right to vote. So this is very topical. Donna, can you fill me in a little bit on the background of why you chose to write this particular book? I actually never had any intention of writing Gilded Dreams, which is sort of a sequel to Gilded Summers, but it stands on its own. You don't need to read the first. The readers were very anxious because I left the lives of Pearl and Ginevra, our heroines, up in the air. And my publisher, of course, once Gilded Summers hit international best-selling status, of course, they wanted more. And I said, I'll do it if I can find an event that I'm passionate about that makes sense in the lives of our heroines. And lo and behold, I found out that 2020 was the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment. So we were off to the races and my publisher, Next Chapter, and I really worked very hard. We put this book out in half the time that it typically takes, but we were so determined to get it out before this August 18th date. And yeah. it, was, it was worth it. Yeah, the, the timing is awesome. And, and your characters, they're immediately likable from the beginning of the book. You really get into their corners, which is great. But the book doesn't start with the whole woman's suffrage thing, does it? No, it doesn't. It starts with the sinking of the Titanic. And um, in the elite community of Newport at the time, the Vanderbilts and the Astors, many of them were on the Titanic and many of them were lost. But that was a mechanism. So um, Pearl does lose her family. And in that event, we see just how limited a married woman's legal rights were. And so that's where I started the tale because it came to a surprise to me as much as it did to Pearl and her best friend, Ginevra. And they were completely shocked at the lack of rights. So all the wealth, all the homes, and everything that Pearl's family owned went to Pearl's husband. Right. And although he was a great man, and she wasn't concerned that he would do anything against her wishes, it really just struck home how little rights they had. So I thought it was important to start with an event that illuminated that fact. Yes, and even though a lot of rights came the way of women, it was even in the 50s, a woman couldn't have her own credit card. She couldn't, no, she had to have them in her husband's name. My mother was a woman of the 50s. She was born, she's 
86 going on 30 right now. (laughs) um, She remembers a time when to get a credit card, she had to get them in my father's name. Yes. And and the U.S. was late to the game for women's they suffrage, were late too. To the game. They were late to the game. But one of the things that I truly admired about American suffragettes was, unlike their U.K. counterparts, they were very nonviolent. But they suffered great consequences nonetheless. The Silent Sentinels, which is was a movement that went on for about a year and a half of the suffrage movement, found these women imprisoned and tortured. And some of the women who tortured, their health was affected to the point where they died from it. And yet they were literally called the silent sentinels. There was no violence. There was no blowing up of mailboxes like they did in the UK. There were no riotous protests. They were all very controlled. And yet they suffered nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. So what's your connection to Newport? So I'm a born and raised Rhode Islander. And where I live right now, it's a stone's throw, a bridge ride over for me to get there. I was raised an inner city child of Rhode Island. But I went to university. URI is very much near the coast. And I knew from that point on, I had to live near here. And as soon as I, pretty much as soon as I got my driver's license, I started going to Newport. And in fact, my last job working for someone else was based in Newport. And I worked there for five years and I just immersed myself. This is a tiny island that the likes of George Washington, Brent Franklin, Thomas Jefferson visited. There were bankers in Newport that helped fund the revolution. And then there are the stories of the Astors and the Vanderbilts that built those mansions. So as a historical fiction writer, it's just this tiny little pod of immense history for me to tap into. And I just, I'm so grateful to be so close and so affiliated with that island. Yeah. 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 I've been to Newport and I did the tours of the various houses. Do you have a favorite one of those? I do. And that is in fact the home that Pearl's family owned. I bunny quotes there. It's the Elms, but in my tale, I call it the beaches. And I did so because the Elms was actually not built until after 1900. So when I was writing Gilded Summers, there were a lot of um, not nice things that went down in that book. And I thought, if I use this home, then the Berwyn family, who is responsible for building that particular mansion, can't come back and say, you've disparaged my family because the Elms didn't even exist. But it is also my favorite because there are these beech trees, hence why I called it the beaches that formed this enormous cave. In fact, in Gilded Summers and Gilded Dreams, that's where Pearl and Ginevra go for their most intimate conversations they they don't want overheard. Yes. The place that I went to sit with my computer and I wrote portions of both books in that cave of trees. Wow. It's, It's a magical place. 
I liken it to Diana Gabaldon's stone circles, and I swear there's magic under those trees. I felt it from the moment I stepped in there, and it turns out that the two books that include that place have been game changers as far as my career is concerned. Wow. There you go. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. It also helps that you're a really good writer. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that very much. Thank yeah, yeah, you. yeah. That your choice of details, the way, just how much historical information you get in without disrupting the story, disrupting the story. I mean, that's all really important. So, it, can you talk a little bit about your writing process? Sure. I'm very prodigious when it comes to my research and when it comes to outlining. So typically, not with Gilded Dreams, because as I said, we rushed it through, but typically I'll do a year of research before I begin to write a word. And then I create not just an outline, not a chapter outline, but a scene-by-scene outline. And then I'll take my scene-by-scene outline and I go through my research and I mark goes to scene number goes to scene number, and I move it all over onto my outline by scene, and then I'm off to the races. And I've immersed myself so much that a lot of times when I'm moving the research over to the outline, scenes will just organically themselves. I feel oftentimes I'm just a conduit for the story to happen. a lot of writing happens off the page anyway. It so that was, yeah, that was probably going in your mind. And so by the time you sat down, now, I couldn't do yeah. that. I don't have the discipline to spend a year researching before I actually start to write. I, I do both at the same time. Yeah, yeah. But and I'm wondering at your approach, this, this, your whole focus on scene, you have a theater background, right? I do. Yes, I was a model and an actor for many years, and I had the opportunity to appear, though much of the scene got cut. I was in The Departed, Martin Scorsese's The Departed. I did a couple of years on Showtime series The Brotherhood, and all through high school, college, and just a lot of acting. So that does help. It does help me visualize my story and I'm able to put the words down in a way that I hope will allow the reader to visualize the story. I just want them to see it all in their minds without being too heavy on the description because that can weigh down historical fiction. It's very easy for that to happen. The balance needs to be just right. Yes, indeed. It's interesting because while scenes are really important, they have certain characteristics that apply to both cinema or stage and and prose. Right. There's a difference because you have the stage directions and the actors emoting. So the narr- the narration has to supply that. And exactly. yeah, and it's a delicate balance to strike, I think, because you is. have to have the telling part in prose. Sometimes you do, and we don't get the privilege of curtain opens and the setting is visual. Or in on a film, they'll do a 
zoom in shot and all of a sudden you're in downtown Boston where The Departed was filmed. We have to bring people there with our pros, but we can't do so much that they lose interest. Yeah. So again, yeah. it either has to be, I also teach historical fiction for Writer's Digest University. So I'm always, I tell my students at the end of the class, the one unbreakable rule of writing historical fiction is no info dumping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? So we have to do it through dialogue or we have to through, do it through an interior monologue or action because writers just don't want to read paragraphs and paragraphs of descriptive material. So in both Gilded Summers and Gilded Dreams, I used Ginevra, who's an Italian immigrant, who is based on my grandmother, to, to see these mansions through an Italian, poor Italian immigrant's eyes. You got not only to see it, but to feel the largesse of it because of her poorness. Yeah. So that's why I used her to describe yeah. There's sort of there's sort of an element of an upstairs downstairs or Downton Abbey kind of thing, but it's different in that. At least I think the friendships, having those two characters be friends, is something that wouldn't happen in Downton Abbey or upstairs downstairs. So talk a little bit about that. That it, I'm doing a little happy dance as you say those words because that is exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to make it much more individualized, much more personal. And so the only way to do that was through just one upstairs person and one downstairs person. And that's not what you had in either upstairs, downstairs, or Downton Abbey. And their friendship did in part come through from Pearl's genuine, inherent curiosity about the world around her. And that meant breaking out of the constraint of the socialite and seeing what the other side of the world looked like. So at first, Geneva was just a novelty to her, someone she had never, an immigrant, an Italian immigrant, she had never come across. And this, they were soul sisters from the moment they met each other. And they could not detach from one another. And that friendship just allowed their stories to unfold in a way that neither upstairs, downstairs, or Downton Abbey were able to do. And it's funny you mentioned Downton Abbey because I pitched Gilded Summers to my editor at the time. It was the year before Downton Abbey came out. And she said, oh, no one's interested in that time period. <laughs> So I ended up signing a three-book contract for another trilogy set, my Da Vinci's Disciples trilogy, set in the Italian Renaissance. But then as soon as I was done with that contract, I immediately went back to Gilded Summers, and it just blew up from there because Downton Abbey had laid the groundwork. And I'm grateful to them, but I love that I was able to put my own spin on it. Yes. Yeah, and the other thing is, Female friendships are yes. an unexplored territory in a lot of novels. And I think, they are. yes, and like female friendships are along with older women, <laughs> are unexplored territory. And it's funny because I have, I've had an opportunity to speak to an author who's 
uh, protagonist is older, is a forty-something woman, yeah, and right. uh, yeah, and that was uh, Bronte's mistress, Fanula Austin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and I love that that people are doing that, and that are that writers are actually flouting the rules or the this the accepted wisdom a little bit by exploring some of these different kinds of relationships it doesn't just have to be young woman falls in love with handsome man yeah exactly as to the older woman i have to say that i think that's a reflection of our times i think the older woman is truly coming into her own right now i think we are showing great potential that has never been explored before because we have more education, more wisdom, and things are much more open to us. And we're retaining youth in a way that women weren't doing before. I'm 62 and I'm... You're a child, just a child. I'm a child. (laughs) Tell my bones that when I wake up. (laughs) But most of the time I do still feel like a child. So working 17 hour days, doesn't rankle me anymore or as it might have to a 60 something woman 40 years ago we're just keeping fitter and stronger and you combine that with the wisdom of our age and there's no stopping us anymore yeah i feel that very strongly and as to the friendships as a feminist myself i was born in 58 i watched uh, rapidly, uh, the fight for the ERA amendment, Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug, and they really shaped me as I was growing up. And I have always found that women can be our very best friends or our worst enemies. <laughs> and that's why in Gilded Dreams, a lot of the emphasis was on what was called the anti. There were as much parties, anti-vote parties, as there were four pro-vote parties. Yeah. And so one of the greatest foes that Pearl and Geneva and their like had a fight were other women. Yeah. And I still find today sometimes the cattiness that can be a little too inherent in the female gender hurts us. We need to back each other, no questions asked. It doesn't matter who's prettier, who's thinner, who has better fashion. Any of that is so totally meaningless. In a world where it's 2020, we've had the vote for only 100 years, and we still have so far to go. There are so many rights. Mm-hmm. that are either in danger or not truly ours. The Me Too movement has shown sexual harassment in the, worst play, in the workplace is still so rife. We need to back each other up. We need to be there for each other. And so that's why I'm getting overpassionate, but um, that's why Pearl and Geneva's friendship and how they backed each other up was so important for me to put on the page. Yeah. I hope we can follow their lead better. Yeah, I think it's definitely a, a great step forward. And I am just... I'm very much an equalitist. I believe that all job applications, college applications, 
there should not be any gender-based, first name should not be included. It should be our initial and the last name. There should be nothing on any applications that will indicate gender, race, or religion. And yeah. until you get to that point, across the board, colleges, jobs, politically, were not on a truly equal footing. That's a really good point. I hadn't actually thought of that myself, yeah. but it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a really good point. Since I was, yeah. uh, one of the first things I ever wrote was a feminist essay, and I was 11 years old. <laughs> you are precocious, for sure. I was precocious. Yeah. So, my mother. <laughs> yeah, so tell me a little bit about your journey as an author, your, how you got into being published and everything. That's very interesting. So... I started writing pretty in grade school and I had a, my sixth grade teacher would have, if we were all very well behaved during the week, she would have story time with Donna on Fridays. And I got to read my little stories out that my mother still has. They're so old, the creases are, they're yellow and the creases are falling apart. But that was the first real support. The first, when I, knew I could make someone laugh or I could make them be shocked. I was hooked. My father, my paternal grandfather, who came from Italy, was a violin and viola player and maker. One of his violas is in the Smithsonian Institute. But my father knew only poverty is the child of an artist. So when he would go to parent-teacher conferences and they would tell him, she's a creative, she writes in English, she writes in science class, she writes in math class, and he said, no, she's going to get a real job. <laughs> so when I went to college, I did get a degree in marketing communications, but I also studied a great deal of English literature and got a degree in that as well. And so when I left college, I ended up working in marketing. Kids came, the marriage, the husbands came. I try to write, but as a working mom, not very easy to do. And then in 2002, I got very ill in the summer with what I thought I had was the flu. It never went away. Seven doctors and two and a half years passed until I was finally tested and positively diagnosed with Lyme disease. Oh, I was going to guess that. I was going to yeah. guess that. Yep. And they put a port in, and I was went through intensive antibiotic treatments for a year and a half. But because it was two and a half years before I was even diagnosed, it was too late. It was chronic. But I was forced to quit the day job, but I'm not the one to just sit on the couch and watch daytime television. I'd rather be shot in the foot. <laughs> and so I took that opportunity to commence my research and the writing of my first book. I wrote the book in nine weeks. I landed an agent in two months and she got me a contract in four months. Wow. Which these days in the publishing industry, that's really rare. And so with Gilded Dreams, it's been 10 books in 11 years while raising two sons, putting them through college. I have an opera singer and a chef. So the opera singer also had his master's degree from Manhattan in New York. He's now getting his PhD at Boston University. But he's married and 
I don't have to support him while he's doing that. He's on yeah. his own now. Seven and a half years in divorce court from a very bad situation. Mm. And I still put out 10 books in 11 years. As I said, there's no stopping the older women now. We no, are. Yeah, women have to know how to have to know how to live that way because we're so often in that position where we're the ones who have to do the lion's share of the yeah. child so care my, and yeah. My writing journey is fraught with trauma, but that trauma has made its way onto the page, and it's given me a strength. And I'm just so delighted that my readership is growing and that they are finding they are finding their own traumas they are relating to my characters and they are finding consolation and solace at the same time a writer you know, can ask for better absolutely and the thing is that it's easy i think especially now with what's going on with covid-19 to feel like oh i'm just a writer you know what yeah. what do I have to offer yeah. and, and but that's but it's true what what we are providing is the opportunity for people to get away from everything and also to yeah. learn something as historical novelists yeah exactly that's very true and to see the parallels of our lives and our struggles in the women of the past yeah and i think that's so important we can not only learn but we can find empathy with them with these women and their struggles. And it's so important to know we're not alone. We're not alone in our own time period. We're not alone throughout history. And yeah. let's learn from these women of the past, bring it to our struggles of today and move forward in strength. And that's what I try and do in all of my books. Hear, hear. <laughs> yes. Let's go, girls. Yes, absolutely. Is there anything else you that I haven't thought of asking you that you want to talk about your books? Talk about in Gilded Dreams in particular? Uh, yeah, I guess it's... I, I talked to so many people, and I was stunned at how many women did not know that this was the 100th year anniversary of our getting the vote. And I want women to know just how much blood, sweat, and tears was shed for that right. So please don't squander your vote. It was hard won. It is one of the most essential rights of citizenship. So go out there and cast it. I truly don't care who you cast it for. I'm not pushing for any political agenda. But... Women are the majority in this country. Make our voices heard. Use that right that these women fought so hard for. Don't squander it. Yes, it's a great message to uh, end yeah. on this particular day. And I, I can't say how much I've enjoyed talking to you, Donna. And I, sort of meeting, I know you, but I don't know you. you know? I, yeah, well, I, hope, I feel the same way, and I hope we get to know each other better. Yes, definitely. We will, we will definitely make that happen. Thank Good. you so I'm much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. One more thing I was just going to say, how, where do people find you? What's, uh, uh, you can find me everywhere, DonnaRussoMorin.com, Facebook, author Donna Russo Morin, Instagram, Donna Russo Morin. Yeah, 
just okay. Google Don Russo Morin and you'll find me around the world, actually. Yes. Yeah. And people should really follow authors. It really helps us to have that it kind of so amplification. People don't realize the power that they have to help us along. Yes, so, absolutely. You know, find so, me, follow me, and talk to me. Absolutely. And uh, I will put some links in when I post the interview as well. Great. And, and again, I want to thank you so much. And Thank you. This yeah. is wonderful. And best of luck with this podcast. I think it's wonderful work you're doing to bring more attention to historical fiction. 